Hello everyone, this week is Parshas Chukas, and we are recording this class privately. We'd like, there are two Parshas really, Chukas and Bolok, but I'm going to focus only on Parshas Chukas. And first let's share a little review of the important dates, so we see exactly where Parshas Chukas fits into everything. And if anyone would like the notes of this class, please email me at rabbimachalowitz at gmail.com and I'll be happy to send you the notes that you can follow along with the class. So the relevant dates we know on the 15th of Nisan in the year 2448, the Jewish people left Egypt and that becomes the holiday of Pesach and that's when God himself counted the Jewish people. Okay, uh, seven weeks later, the 7th of Nisan, the year 2448, was the Sinai revelation and the holiday of Shavuos. Forty days later, on the 17th of Tamos, was the sin of the golden calf. Uh, Moshe has to plead for forgiveness. He goes up to the mountain on a third time on the 1st of Elul, and he comes back down on the 10th of Tishrei, he returns with the second tablets, and that is Yom Kippur. Five days later, the construction of the Mishkan begins. That's the holiday of Sukkot, and God has the people counted a second time with Moshe. It takes about three months to finish construction of the Mishkan. On the 25th of Kislev, the construction of the Mishkan was complete, yet God deferred its inauguration. However, that ultimately will be a commemoration celebrated with Hanukkah. The first of Nisan, almost a year later in the year 2449, is when the Mishkan was erected, and a lot of events happened there. The death of Norov and Avihu, many uh, portions in Sefer Bamidbor, Parshish Naso, beginning of Baloscha, Lots and lots was discussed on the first of Nisan in the year 2449. And really the beginning of Parsh Sefer Bamidbor is as well uh, of the first of Nisan 2449. Uh, Then in the 15th of Nisan came the first Pesach and only Pesach in the desert in Parsha's Bahalosacha. the Sefer Bamidbar uncharacteristically starts with the counting of the Jewish people for the third time, which was on the first of Eeyore, and there's a reason why we start out of order there. We continue in Parshas Baloscha with the 14th of Eeyore being Pesach Sheni, the 20th of Eeyore, the Jews leave Sinai, the 23rd of Eeyore, the Jews complain all about the manna, and a month later, Miriam contracts Saras. That's all Baloscha, and everything pretty much in Sefer Bamidbar is going in order, pretty much. We begin Parsha Shlach a week later. At the end of Sivan, the spies are, spent, spies are sent out. They come back 40 days later. We have Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av in the year 2449. Then we have last week's Parsha, the revolt of Korach. We don't have an exact date, but it was soon after the sin of the spies. So by the time the Korach story is over, we're about a year and a half since we left Egypt. 
Okay, now we begin Parshas Chukas. Now that we got ourselves all caught up, and we are, begins with the laws of the Pura Aduma, which we'll get back to in a minute. And then the stories continue with the death of Miriam. Now, we will see in a moment from Rashi that there is a 40-year gap now between the last story of Korach, well, a 38-year gap to be more precise, and the death of Miriam, which is on the 10th of Nisan, which was followed by the sin of Moshe hitting the rock, is all Parshas Chukas, followed by the death of Aaron, which is on the 1st of Av, and then there's various, many, many more topics, too many to mention, but we conclude basically with the conquest of Sichon and Og, and ultimately the camping of the Jews east of the Jordan River. That's just a summary to get us in place. Again, I listed it all down on the handout. The question is as follows. As we see, the everything is pretty much in order in Sefer Bamidbar, except for this issue of the Pura Aduma that begins in this week's Parsha. Pura Aduma had to be given the mitzvah with the inauguration of the Mishkan, which was on the 1st of Nisan in the year 2449. Now that 1st of Nisan, that is way before all the events of Parshas Balosacha with the... Uh, the, the first Pesach in the desert, Pesach Sheni, all the other stories that happened. So for some reason, the Torah be, goes drastically out of order by mentioning this mitzvah Parduma that belongs somewhere either in Sefer Vayikra or right at the beginning or in, uh, yes, or at the very beginning of Parshas Naso, uh, Parshas Sefer Bamidbar. Why is it put in in the middle of this 40-year gap, 38-year gap. And that's what you see in the first source, chapter 20. It says, after bringing the laws of Paraduma, the red heifer, it says, The entire congregation of the children of Israel arrived at the desert of Tzin, in the first month. Okay, it doesn't tell us the 10th day. But the people were living in Kadesh, and Miriam died and she was buried. Rashi comments on the words Kol Ha'eda, the entire congregation, to tell us that the complete congregation for the ones destined to die in the desert had already died, and these were assigned for life. That's based on a Medrash Tanchuma. And now Rashi deals with the question. It says Miriam died there. Rashi asks, why is the passage relating Miriam's death juxtaposed with the passage of the red cow? To teach that just as sacrifices bring atonement, so the death of the righteous secure atonement. Okay. That gives you some kind of an explanation as to why we have Paraduma is thrust in here. As well, if we look a little bit further, after the sin of hitting the rock, the Torah continues and says, Vayisu mi Kadesh, the people traveled from Kadesh, Vayavo b'nei Yisrael, kol ha'eda horor. 
and the Jewish people came, the entire congregation, to Mount Hor. Again, why the entire congregation? So Rashi even says it clearer. All were perfect, ready to enter the land. There was not among them even one of those upon whom the decree had been pronounced. For all of those destined to die in the desert had already perished. And though, and these were of those about whom it is written, you, etc., are all alive this day. Okay, good. And then finally, the Parsha ends telling us that the Jews, after all the events of this week's Parsha, it tells us the Jews traveled on and camped in Arvas Moab, in the plains of Moab, on the east bank opposite Jericho. Okay, this is all the factual material. So the main question we want to focus on, I want to share with you a beautiful sicha. This is not from the Likute sichos, but from a Shabbos sicha that the Rebbe said in uh, the 7th of Thomas, 1990, Parshas Chukas. And the main question is that, of course, again, why is Paraduma drastically out of order? There is a 40-year gap from the sin of Korach, last week's Parsha, to the story of Moshe hitting the rock, 38-year gap. And we insert Paraduma here. So Rashi picked up on why it's the connection between this and Miriam to show that it brings atonement. However, the truth of the matter is, the Rabbi says, we have to understand that since everything in the Torah is of the most specific precision, it would seem that everything else in the Parsha, which is part of Parsha's Chukas, would have something to do with the Parah Duma being placed there. Remember, we have placed the Torah portion uh, para Aduma out of order at the beginning of the Parsha, which means we're defining the Parsha as Chukas HaPara. And everything in the Parsha should have to fit into that theme. So it's not merely a question of why did the para Aduma, why is it out of order, and why is it before the death of Miriam, which does teach us that the death of a, of a, tzad, a tzaddik brings atonement like the para Aduma. But there must be a connection, an essential connection between Paraduma and everything that is mentioned in the Parsha. So this is what we want to talk about. What is the overall theme of this Parsha that every event in this Parsha relates to Paraduma to such an extent that we have to put Paraduma here, which belonged 38 years later? What would we have lost if we would have put Paraduma much earlier? And you want to learn that the death of a tzaddikes, uh, you know, brings atonement. We could certainly have found other concepts to bring that across. So obviously, there's much more than this one answer. So to answer this, let's focus on one other troubling issue towards the end of the parsha. Now, there's all kinds of um, wars that go on. The Jews are not allowed to conquer Edom. There's certain people we're not allowed to give trouble to Amun and Moab. I don't want to get bogged down in all the details, but these are definitely three nations that are on the east bank of the Jordan that God, for whatever reason, decided we should not start up with them. On the other hand, there were other nations that initiated and started up with us, such as the nation of Sihon and also the giant Og. Torah also relates to us, although that we could not conquer Edom, Amon and Moab, 
But since Sichon had battles with them and defeated them, so then when Sichon battled us, we were able to capture many of the lands on the East Bank. And that leads us towards the end of the Parsha, where Moshe now, before there is a battle that goes on, Moshe says the following in source number six. Vayishlach Moshe l'ragalas yazir. Moshe sends some people out to spy out the city of ya- the area of Yazir to spy it out. Interesting. and they captured its villages. and they drove out the Amorites who were living there. Rashi quotes and says that the spies captured it. They said, we shall not do like the first group. We have such confidence in the power of Moshe's prayer that we are able to do battle. So let's think about this little last aspect over here. Number one, you know, things happen at the end of the Parsha sometimes get ignored with all the activity that's going on in the Parsha. So it clearly says Moshe sent people out to spy Yazir. And the question, first question is, First of all, why did he send out any spies? It was a t- terrible calamity, a failure the last time. Why does he do that? And B, the reason it failed the first time is because the spies did not do the, what they were told. They did more than what they were told. The original spies were said, just check out the lamp, bring out a report. They gave more than the report. They gave their opinion. So you see, sending spies, you can never be sure if they're going to do exactly what they were told. Moshe again sent spies to look out this area of Yazer, which is on the East Bank. And guess what? They indeed changed what they were told to do. Moshe sent them just to spy out the cities. And what did they do? On their own, they go and conquer the land. So question A is, how could Moshe send more spies and he learn his lesson from the first group. Number two, the, the spies, how could they do more than what Moshe said? They seem to be making the same mistake as the other group. However, we see that they were successful, which will need a little bit of explanation. But also we see when the Jews are settling land, it, it says a few times, as you have a number of sources over here, in uh, source number seven, uh, source number eight, source number nine, it says the Jews took possession of the land of one of the enemies from the Arnon to the Yabok, as far as the children of Ammon, for the border of the children of Ammon was strong. And then again it says, in the next source, Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. And furthermore, in source 10, it says, and they took possession of the land of Og. So we see that the Jews are doing a lot of conquest. And we have to analyze what is going on over here. We see with the original sending of the spies, it was clear our intent was when we come to Eretz Yisrael, we will conquer the lands. Fine, there was no intention of conquering anything on the east side. Clearly, the original spies were only sent for the West Bank. So when it comes to the East Bank, for sure, uh, not goes without saying the land of Edom, Ammon, and Moab, that the Jews did not conquer themselves because we weren't allowed to. 
But even let's say the lands of Sichon and Og that the Jews conquered, it's only because the Jews were attacked. They wanted to be peaceful, and they were attacked by Sichon and Og. So therefore, they never really wanted those lands as well. And therefore, the whole idea was to conquer them, to win, so we can pass through. We had a fight with Sihon, we had a fight with Og. They were the protectors of the land. We had to fight them to get through, but there was never an intention to inhabit that land. But as we'll see in a few weeks, that the tribes of God and Ruvain, they wanted to live in that very area that was now conquered by the Jews on the East Bank. And the question is, how could this be? How could they want, why would it even be entertained as a possibility to want land on the East Bank? It was never part of the desire of Hashem for us to conquer them. And when the B'nai God and Ruvain go to Moshe and say, we don't want to cross the land, it seems, as we know, we'll see in a few weeks, they're doing the same mistake that the spies did. As Moshe really um, lambasts them and say, you're going to dishearten everybody by not going into the land. So, and why is it? It says they had a lot of cattle. It says that the tribes of Ruvain and God had a lot of cattle. And guess what? The land's east bank were very fertile for all their cattle. So that's very weird. Just because you're cattle, you want to not go to Eretz Yisrael? Have you learned nothing from this whole debacle with the spies? And Moshe called them on that. But eventually they said, no, 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 that's not a problem. We'll be the first to fight and all that. And it seems that Moshe says, okay, if you're the first to fight and you're the first to conquer, we'll let you do this. But the real question is, why Moshe said, what business do you have on the East Bank? Forget about it. You know, case closed. Hashem wants us to conquer the West Bank. Forget about the East Bank. And therefore, it's very strange as we see the end of this week's Parsha is already alluding to all this. It's saying how we conquered it and how we're building up cities. And after that conquest, uh, you see, already see they're building up and that's cross-referencing to God and Reuven who ask about this. It's all very difficult questions. And in general just wanted to mention that we look at Parsha's Chukas as a very sad Parsha. Why is it a very sad Parsha? Well, first of all, Moshe, quote-unquote, sinning by hitting the rock is very sad. He doesn't get to go into Eretz Yisrael. Miriam died before that. Aaron dies afterwards. And, uh, you know, the Jews try to go into Eretz Yisrael and the Amori, the Adomi, don't allow them to go in. Okay, there's a couple, and then there's, there was, it's, it's not a very happy Parsha. You know, the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu cannot go to Eretzol, it's a very sad Parsha. So the Rebbe gives a beautiful answer to explain everything, and perhaps we could see this is not such a sad Parsha. Remember, Rashi tells us, and this is the basic answer, Rashi said, Kulam Shlemim, they were all perfect, Va'omdim lihikanes la'aretz, they were prepared and set to enter the land because the decree of the 40 years of people dying because of the spies, that means all the people who cried for no reason have passed on. So now we could be sure of one thing, that the new generation would not be foolish enough to make the same mistakes that their parents did, which caused them to roam around in the desert. And if anything, you would figure 
that they would want to make a tikkun, a repair to the damage that happened. So if we look at it from that perspective, it's the new generation coming. They were taught, you know why we're in this desert? Because our parents didn't have enough faith in Hashem, etc., etc. So that's why we quoted the Rashi with those spies who were set to spy out. And they said, Lo We will not do like the first group. And therefore their intention was to be careful not to make the same mistake. And if you don't want to make the same mistake, you have to make a correction on that. And therefore, as you look in the Rambam, in source number 11, in the laws of tshuva, he says, when is a zehuhi tshuva gemura? What is complete tshuva? Zeshebole yoro dover sha'avar bo. The thing comes to him again, which he sinned in the past. And he could do it. And he turns away and does not make the same mistake. So therefore, when you want to make a tikkun, you have to go into the same area, exactly in the same position, but this time do not make the same mistake. So now we can understand why Moshe is sending spies again. Why is he sending spies again? To see if the Jews are going to make the same mistake or not. And what was the mistake of the first spies? They were given a mission and they decided to add things that they were not asked to do and that made a great problem. So now the next spies would have to be in the same position and to succeed. So what did they do? They did shoot. They did add again, but they added in a good way. That even though Moshe sent them just to spy, they did more and they conquered. And Dafka by conquering, because they said, and the words of Rashi are, "Betuchim, we are now sure of the power of the prayers of Moshe Rabbeinu." In other words, the first spies, their fault was they didn't have enough bitachim. They figured we weren't worthy to enter the land for all our mistakes. So therefore, what was the problem of the spies? As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in Parshas Shalach, the problem is they didn't look at the land the way Hashem wanted them to look at the land. These spies say, we're going to look at the land how Hashem wants. He's already promised we'll get it. So therefore, they're showing how much amuna they have, that they're saying, listen, we've seen the land, and guess what? We really know what Hashem would want us to do right now. Because we want to be able to cross through and conquer and get into Eretz Yisrael. So therefore, we'll conquer some lands on the East Bank to make it easier to go through, to show how much amuna that we have in Moshe's prayers. And therefore, that's exactly the tikkun to the hate. So now we should really, and that's Ramesh at the end of the Parsha. So that should Mamish give us uh, happiness to realize that in Parsha's Chukas, notwithstanding the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu is not going to come into Eretz Yisrael, and notwithstanding that the old generation is gone, but to realize at the end of the Parsha that the new generation has learned from the mistakes and they had spies that succeeded. So that's point number one. Now let's go back to Ruvain and God. And now you're going to find something very, very interesting. The Torah keeps telling us that we're going to come to the land of Eretz Yisrael and conquer the seven Canaanite nations. However, when did this all begin? This all began hundreds of years earlier at the Brisbane of the Sarim, the covenant between the parts between Hashem and Avram. 
And there Hashem and Avram had a promise that Hashem says, you are going to, you, and you're going to have family, you're going to have Eretz Yisrael, ah, there's going to be some trouble, going to be in Egypt, but ultimately, you're going to conquer a number of nations. And if you look carefully, in chapter 15, Pasuk Chaf Aleph, it lists how many nations are there. And Rashi says the following, there are ten nations enumerated here. But he, Hashem, gave them only seven nations. The other three are Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And they are referred to as the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites, which are destined to be our heritage in the future, as it says in the book of Isaiah, upon Edom and Moab shall they stretch forth their hand, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. What Rashi is telling us, that in the very first covenant between the parts, they, Hashem promised Avram ten nations, seven on the west bank, which is primary Eretz Yisrael, but three on the east bank, which would also be Eretz Yisrael. Clearly, there were ten being offered. So, but the question is, as we come to the conquest, Hashem keeps sending spies for the west bank and saying there's basically seven nations to conquer. So now, with this understanding we can understand what B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain are trying to do. B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain are also trying to fix up the mistake of the spies. And let's talk about the major mistake of the spies and see how this will all be corrected. What was one of the big mistakes of the spies? The spies felt for us to become very spiritual people, we cannot be involved in regular life living in a land where there's harvesting and farming and everything and living in a Gashmias world. They felt if you want to be a holy people, you have to be totally separated from the world like monks in a monastery. And therefore, they understood the best thing we could do is to serve Hashem. And therefore, the best thing we could do is to stay in the desert forever. Doing Mamish be amazing. We'll, we'll be close to Hashem. We'll do the Ratzon of Hashem. And why bother coming into the land? You see, the land, it can corrupt people. This big Yetzirah, etc., etc. Their thought, for whatever goodness they thought was, we want to stay away from temptation. Let's just stay in the desert, getting man all the time, and being close to Hashem. That was a major mistake, because Hashem did not create the world to have people not live in the world. He said, I want you to go into Eretz Yisrael, a land that's very physical, without any miracles, and show the world that there is divinity within every rock, every piece of grass, every fruit, and that all is a unity to Hashem in the world. And that only happens when you're involved in the physical world. And therefore, since the punishment was, since you did not feel you could be up to it, so you will stay in the desert. That's fine. The next generation has to make tikkun on that also. Remember, everything needs tikkun. So what's the tikkun, what's the repair? That they are going to go into Eretz Yisrael. No question about it. Ah, but to make the tikkun perfect, there was a, a point made by the spies that is true. And what is that? That when you go into Eretz Yisrael and you're a farmer and you live with animals and you have non-Jews around you, you know, it is a challenge and you may fail and create all kinds of problems. So therefore, you know, what would guarantee that when the Jews go into Eretz Yisrael, 
that they will succeed in Eretz Yisrael. So therefore, this is what God and Ruvain positively were thinking, which is they wanted to hasten the inheritance of the land in the most perfect way. And the inheritance of the land in the most perfect way is the seven nations on the West Bank and also the three on the East Bank because ultimately there were ten nations that we were supposed to conquer. This was all part of the Brisbane of Asarim. This wasn't any Hasidic drush. This was, they knew there were ten nations that they were destined to conquer. That is the destiny of the Jewish people and that includes the lands of Ammon and Moab and the Edomites, etc., etc. And we know that when Sichon fought Ammon and Moab, the expression of the Talmud is Tiharo, they purified it. In other words, they made it uh, conquerable. And therefore, since Sichon took the lands of Ammon and Moab, etc., etc., and why does it have to tell us any of that? What do we care what's going on? So that's internal Goyish wars. The answer is because now those lands are capable for the Jews to conquer. So you see, their mamish, Reuben and God are saying, look at the Yad of Hashem. We aren't allowed to conquer these nations. So if we're not allowed to conquer these nations, of course we can't take them, and we'd have to go straight into Israel. There's no Havamina. Reuben and God had no thought to think we're not crossing because we can't touch these lands. But when they see the divine hand of Hashem, the divine hand of Hashem has all kinds of internal politics, where Sichon fights with lands that the Jews aren't allowed to fight with, and he wins. And then more than that, Sichon starts up with us and we defend ourselves, we're able to conquer all this land, then Reuben and God clearly see Hashem is providing us the opportunity to make a complete tikkun. And therefore this is the tikkun for the sin of the Dora Midbar that did not want to go into Eretz Yisrael. And now Reuben and God want us not only to go to Eretz Yisrael, but we want to get everything, okay, to make it the best conquest possible. We don't want to have just a conquest of seven nations, but we want to have all ten, and that will bring a perfection to our conquest. Why? We shall see shortly. And what becomes this extra conquest is as follows. This prepares us for the conquest of the seven nations on the other side of the Jordan. Now, why B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain specifically? So now we could put together a few more pieces of the puzzle. B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain, it says, Miknerav, they had a lot of cattle. And it appears ostensibly they have a lot of cattle need a lot of pasture land. That's not an Eretz Yisrael. So therefore, it makes a lot of sense that they should be able to pasture in this place. And you begin to see the special tikkun that's happening over here, as we've already said. That as opposed to the spies who thought that everybody has to stay in the desert, and they made this mistake because they didn't feel we have to sift through the physicality and elevate it. The B'nai Gada B'nai Ruvain, who knew that the whole intention of the tikkun is to sift through the world and bring out all the holy sparks in the physical realm. And Hashem wants us to go to Israel, but in the best way possible, and the best way possible to conquer the whole land is if they stay on the east bank, 
because this will hasten the conquest of the Jewish people. And really for this, Moshe was okay with. That's not a problem because it is really an interesting concept over here. Let me explain. The fact is there is a great danger, as the original spies thought, that if we go into Eretz Yisrael, we're going to be very much engaged in the the land of Israel, and we could get confused and confounded by that. So we have to be able to have a handle of spirituality to hold on to while we're engaged in the conquest of the land and living in the land. And Hasidus tells us, many, many people say this vort, that the seven nations who lived in Eretz Canaan correspond with the seven emotional qualities of the seven lower spheros of Chesed through Malchus. Meaning to say, every one of the Canaanite nations represented the antithesis and the opposite of that Mida. For example, Chesed, okay, so Chesed, the Canaanim, who were the antithesis of Chesed. Chesed means to, to expand and share oneself and to give, etc., and have that emotional feeling of attachment. While in Canaan, they corrupted it. Now, the Jewish task is to destroy the Canaanim, not just physically, but that emotional corruption must be destroyed as well. Now, that's a challenge. Granted. Now, those are the seven. Wait a minute. But what else is there? Well, we know besides the seven lower spheros, there are the three, three higher spheros that deal with our intellectual potentials, which is Chachma, Bina, and Das. Those three correspond to the three nations on the East Bank. And therefore, it's very interesting that initially Hashem felt, let's just conquer the seven nations on the West Bank. Let's just get a quick conquest of that. But the problem is, we know in our study of the spheros that the seven lower spheros can only be appropriately um, uh, used is when we have the first three spheros solidly in place. And those first three spheros, without having proper chachma, bina and das, it could skew our way of using our emotions. It's very interesting what's going on over here because we know that we have seven shepherds running from Avram through David. And many of the shepherds already have developed for us. The question is, who are the shepherds for the first three aspects of Chachbin and Das? The answer is, there aren't any. There aren't any shepherds because it's beyond us, so to speak. So really, all we can really do ourselves is the seven lower ones. And the other three are gifts from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We study Torah. We try our best to understand God's wisdom, etc., etc. So now we're getting a very interesting play over here. On the one hand, we're told, conquer the seven nations. Okay, now, we understand the challenges in conquering the seven nations because we're used to being in the desert. Remember, the spy said, let's just stay here. This will not have any problems. We're getting all the Chachma, Bina, and Das in the desert. We don't have to worry about anything else. But the problem is, where's the seven lower spheros? If you're not dealing with the physical world, Hashem wants to have a, a, a dira, a domicile in the physical world, Mamish. 
So we have to fix that. We have to go into the physical world. Physical world is going to require the seven slower spheres to be perfected. But now we have a new generation, which the question is, have we yet perfected Chachma, Bina, and Das? So now the question would seem to say, well, Hashem is telling us to conquer the seven nations. Come along, Ruvain and God, and they're saying, you know what? We're all in for this. We want those seven to be conquered. But to really conquer it properly, and we see the Yad Hashem that has provided for us the three nations on the East Bank, and they represent, and we must conquer that, we must first conquer Chachma, Bina, and Das. And to conquer that, We'd have to, we've already conquered them. Now we have to live in that land and live in that land that has certain spiritual sparks and live in the land because we got to understand something. Who were the patriarchs? What were their professions? Their professions were shepherds. Why? Because a shepherd is able to connect much more spiritually to Hashem than others. You're involved in the world, but in a limited sense. It's quiet, it's peaceful. There's, you know, there's not much Yetzirah going on over there. It's an easy job. You can commune with Hashem, and that's what the patriarchs were doing, and that's what David Melech did, and that's what we love. But Eretz Yisrael, in general, is not a land of pasture land. It's a land that you have to work hard, to work the fields hard, and to deal with uh, other foreign influences, etc., etc. So they felt very clearly that it's a sign from Hashem, clearly, that we should live on the East Bank. And Moses never disagreed with that point. He thought they were right also, because the only problem he was afraid, maybe everyone's going to be scared. So they said, no, we'll be the first to go out to battle. And there's a double entendre of this. Meaning, say, Reuben and God said, we're going to go out first to physically battle, no question about it. We're going to also auto spiritually battle to take the three nations on the East Bank and to conquer the issues of Chachmabin and Das. And now that we've already have our wives settling in that land before we're going to battle, and we know that women have Bina Yaseira, so that's already going to be the first step. You see, you've already allowed us to conquer it. The spies conquered some of those lands as well. So this will be a perfect setup. It's our love for Eretz Yisrael, our complete tikkun of Eretz Yisrael. That's what they had in mind. Now, the question is why Reuven and God more than anyone else? Which requires us to ask the next question. What does it mean that they had a lot of cattle? Why did they have a lot of cattle? So the Tiferes Yoinesim, Rabbi Yoinesim and Ibeshitz, explains why they had more than anyone else. And also why they wanted to be on the East Bank. And we know that when Moshe was buried, which was not far from the the story of the Baal Peor, which is at next week's Parsha right at the end, where Moshe is buried. They wanted to be near Moshe. It's uh, The issue is like this. Why, why they had so many sheep and cattle? Well, remember, everybody had a lot of sheep and cattle. And we had mun every day. And the mun was the most spiritual food imaginable. But we could, quote-unquote, say it's boring. <laughs> okay, even though it can taste whatever you want it to taste like, but it's still the same manna every day. Although it's spiritual food from Hashem, it's amazing. So what did the other Jews do? You know, once in a while, let's have a treat. After the manna, we'll take one of our animals and slaughter it. 
They had a lot of animals. There's nothing wrong with slaughtering an animal and eating an animal. And they wanted to have a little geschmack from Gashmias. And that means uh, not the same spiritual food as Mun. Remember, Mun just got absorbed in the body. There was no waste byproduct. It was the healthiest spiritual diet. Torah says, Torah is really only given for those who consume Mun. The deeper idea meaning when you're eating food that has no chomrius, no grossness, and therefore your whole soul is totally connected and it isn't compromised, that has to come with sparks of holiness and there's waste byproduct. No, it's all purity going into the people. And remember, this next generation, they never ate anything but mun. Ah, but someone says, let's have a barbecue. Ah, now that we're introducing other foods, it shows a bit, not a terrible, but a bit of a compromise on the type of food that you eat. And therefore, B'nai Reuven and God, they were so happy with the mun, they didn't want to slaughter any of their animals and eat them, and that's why they had a lot of cattle. And therefore, uh, they, they, they uh, treasured the mun to eat it every time. And that's why it says... Uh, in the Zohar mentions that when the mon is described, it says, Vahamon kizera gad he. So you see a connection to Shevet God to that as well. So the fact that a lot of cattle wasn't because they were uh, people who were into raising cattle per se, it's that they were spiritually into the mon. And since they were into the mon, that showed how much they were now intellectually holier than all the other Jews. Okay, and therefore they would be in the position to deal with the attributes of Chachma, Bina, and Das. Because that's what the man is. They were such on a spiritual level that there is no question about their integrity. They weren't people who just wanted to have great lands. They wanted, they, from the influence of only eating the man and only being involved in a spiritual way, 100% in the desert, did they feel that they could be the ones to be the vanguard of conquering the land, both physically and spiritually? They came to Moshe with the spiritual plan. Let's start the conquest now, Moshe, in your lifetime, and we will be the ones to start that conquest. Conquesting what? The lands that God that providentially already gave us that we weren't even planning on getting. But now that we see Hashem wants to give it to us. So therefore, we will want to take the first advantage to be very spiritual. Aye, but wait a minute. Is that all it's going to be? But at the end of the day, aren't you doing the same thing as the spies? Aren't you not going into the land and not dealing with all the challenges? The answer is no. We don't plan on not having any business with Eretz Yisrael. We plan. We know there's mitzvahs in the Torah. We know there three times a year you have to visit Jerusalem. So here's the point that they felt. Just like the three um, spheros that are the cerebral ones are above and beyond action, so they will be the cerebral part of the Jewish people. They'll be like the head. And certainly there'll be times when we come to Eretz Yisrael and we'll share our Torah knowledge and we will influence in a positive way the rest of Klal Yisrael. 